Welcome to Third Man Walking. In 2018, when I was moving across the country from Ohio to Los Angeles, I spent the night in Santa Fe. And the next morning, I went to a psychedelic interactive art exhibit called Meow Wolf. It was built inside an enormous warehouse. And the inside of this warehouse looked like the outside and then the inside of a suburban home. And I remember the first few rooms of this home, this house inside of a warehouse in New Mexico, seeming fairly normal, but with hints of strange things to come. Some inexplicably titled books, a TV tuned to a bizarre news broadcast. And then I remember walking into a kitchen and opening the door to a refrigerator. Only the refrigerator wasn't really a refrigerator, but sort of a portal to a different dimension. You could walk through it, this refrigerator, and suddenly be somewhere else entirely, in a brightly lit hallway with a color palette you didn't recognize. Then you'd wander into a bathroom with an uneven floor that looked like it was shimmering, as if someone had skipped a pebble on it, or through a garden of neon trees, or into a dining room painted entirely in black and white, as if you'd wandered into a cartoon from the 50s. It looked like if Pee-wee's Playhouse had hundreds of rooms, all of them different. And I mentioned all this for a couple reasons, both related to the fact that I'm traveling to Las Vegas later this week. One is that there's now a Meow Wolf in Las Vegas, and I'm excited to visit, and I highly recommend any friends who are there for the World Series of Poker come by on some day after they've been prematurely eliminated from a tournament, preferably while enjoying some of the many legal substances Vegas has to offer. The other is that I'm also going to be playing in the series, and poker tournaments are a little bit like Meow Wolf. One minute, you're in a laundry room. The next, you're sliding through the dryer door into a mysteriously lit dream world. Now, I don't want to exaggerate how weird tournaments can be because all poker types can be weird. That's certainly true of live cash games. You often have to find paths through hands that there are no maps for. When a good opponent raises in the cutoff, the button folds, and you're in the small blind with pocket tens, that's a situation you encounter fairly frequently, so it's unlikely you're going to be caught completely off guard by whatever happens later in the hand. But if middle position limps, the low jack min raises, the hijack re-raises to six times the low jack's raise size, the cutoff calls, and then it folds to you in the small blind with pocket tens, well, you're already someplace pretty weird, and the weirder a game is, the better it is. Weird is, for the most part, where you want to be. And of course, compared to tournaments, cash games can, depending on how you look at it, be significantly more complex on later betting rounds because there are often confrontations between players who each have 200 big blinds or more. So there are opportunities for unusual and difficult spots to come up even when the preflop and flop action are relatively conventional. The more you study, the more you can put opponents in spots that are unfamiliar to them. For example, sometimes when I'm playing 510 against a thinking opponent, I'll check with a strong hand in a spot where the player pool almost never checks at the strong hand so I can really confuse my opponent with an aggressive action on the next street. In general though, cash games take place on fairly familiar terrain. The starting points for most hands are relatively similar. And of course, I've had a lot of time to study, so even the stranger spots don't feel that strange. Tournaments, at least for me, are a different story. As we've discussed before on the podcast, most big tournament situations occur with much shorter stacks than in cash games which in some respects makes things simpler, but in others makes things infinitely complex. Let's say it folds to you in the low jack seat and you have jack nine suited. 
In a cash game, you should almost always just raise, and there isn't much else to think about. And if you're in a tournament with 100 big blinds and everyone behind you also has 100 big blinds, you should also just raise. But what if you have 18 big blinds? Or what if you have 18 big blinds and you're approaching the bubble of a major tournament? Or what if there are 13 players left and there's going to be a big pay jump after the next elimination? Or what if a couple of those things are true and the big blind is a really good player? Should you raise then? I actually don't really know the answers to some of those questions, and I'm not even sure I've provided enough information that accurate answers can be given anyway. And while some repetitive practice could help me figure out the answers, in some cases it would only get me closer to the answers, because every situation is a little bit different. It's also difficult to learn to play these spots through trial and error, because there's going to be so much variance. We're always so close to doubling up or being eliminated, almost no matter what we do, because stacks are so short. Take all this variance and all this complexity and add the extreme disparities in skill level you see in almost any tournament. The weakest players in tournaments make many of the weakest players in 510 cash games look like Phil Ivey. And tournament hands can get very tricky indeed. Last week, I played an $1,100 tournament at Commerce Casino here in LA as sort of a tune-up for my Las Vegas trip. It was my first live tournament in almost two years. And even though I've emphasized how funky live tournaments can be, the problem I've been having in my last couple hundred hours of live tournament play is that I just wasn't getting in interesting spots. You can listen again to episodes 6 and 7 of Third Man Walking if you want to relive my 2019 World Series of Poker run, in which I basically didn't get dealt a hand for three weeks. It was a bad stretch, but it was also well within the realm of normal variance. A couple hundred hours isn't much. But it was long enough that I started to question my strategy and wonder whether I was playing too tight. On a few occasions, I tried to open up and play a bit looser, but I was severely punished each time. So yeah, sometimes you just don't get dealt a lot of hands, and I'd experienced runs like that in cash games too. But there, I always have my recent track record to comfort me. However bad I was running, I knew I would eventually win. In tournaments, I didn't have that confidence, and I get frustrated while trying to find my way out of the woods. As the blinds increase in tournaments, you feel them bearing down on you. When you aren't getting dealt much and you're watching your stack dwindle, you can't just reload and you feel pressure to make something happen. You feel like being card dead is your fault, even though it isn't. I also find watching tournament players bumble through hands while I get dealt eight deuce off over and over extremely tilting. There are a lot of aspects of tournament culture that seem silly to me, beginning with the fact that on the surface, tournaments feel more competitive than cash games. There are tournament players who take several seconds longer than necessary to make every trivial decision, and others who stare you down intensely in every hand they're in, even though it's level one and they're making mistakes on every street. There's also a palpable sense of desperation in tournaments, because players are there looking for a huge score, and due to simple math, most of them haven't had one recently. While at least the whiff of desperation is probably endemic to all gambling, there's less of it at mid- and high-stakes cash games, where many players are doing pretty well, either because they're consistently winning, or because they're successful people who are simply there to relax for a bit, rather than throwing a Hail Mary they hope will result in a game-winning touchdown. But I'm sure it isn't a coincidence that when I think about tournaments now, I'm focusing on the negative. I'm in the midst of a pretty long losing streak in them. When you're doing well, tournaments feel great. There are few better feelings than running hot in a tournament, going deep into the money and feeling the cool air around you as more and more of your opponents exit the room. I just haven't had that feeling recently. So 
I registered for this $1,100 tournament at Commerce after about two years away, and it didn't go smoothly at first. And after four hours or so, I was thinking, yep, same old shit. In the third level of the tournament, the big blind was 300, and I had around the starting stack of 30,000. A player in early position raised to 800, the low jack called, and I re-raised to 3,600 in the high jack with black queens. The raiser called, and the low jack folded. So there was 8,800 in the pot heading to the flop, which came 10, 7, 3 with the 10 and 3 of hearts. And again, I had black queens. My opponent checked, I bet 3,000, and he called. So there was 14,800 in the pot heading to the turn, which was an offsuit 5, so 10, 7, 3, 5 with 2 hearts. He checked, I bet 7,000, and he called. So 28,800 in the pot on the river, which came the jack of hearts, completing the heart flush and the 9-8 straight draw, and my opponent led all in for my last 15,300. I folded, and boom, half my stack was gone. An hour later, I got in my last 20 or so big blinds with pocket nines and busted after losing a flip to ace-king. Now, this is all standard, normal tournament stuff. It's not some great tragedy. But it felt like nearly all of my last 25 or so tournament buy-ins had gone this way, with me busting before I'd even had a chance to make an interesting decision. So I re-registered, and I was almost angry at myself for doing so before I even handed over the money. This time, though, it went a little bit differently. I didn't even cash or build a big stack, but I hung around long enough to make some interesting decisions and feel like the format was worth my time. In this first significant hand of my second buy-in, the big blind is 800. I have ace-deuce of clubs in the low jack and raised to 1800. The high jack and big blind call. There's 6600 in the pot and the flop is ace-jack-five with the ace and five of hearts, and again I have ace-deuce of clubs. It checks to me. I check, feeling it's not really in my interest to build the pot with top pair and no kicker here, and the hijack checks back. The turn is an ace, giving me trips and creating a backdoor diamond draw. So ace, jack, five, ace with two clubs and two hearts. When the big blind checks again, I don't think it's likely that either opponent has an ace, so I bet 2,000, less than a third of the pot, hoping for a call from a jack or a flush draw. The hijack calls and the big blind folds. So there's 10,600 in the pot heading to the river, which is the five of diamonds, completing backdoor diamonds and giving me a full house. So ace-jack-5, ace-five with three diamonds, and I have ace-deuce of clubs. I still think it's likely that my opponent has a jack or maybe a flush. So I bet very small, 3,000 into 10,600. My opponent calls, I table my hand, and he shows a jack and mucks. So I'm happy to have bet sizes on both the turn and the river where I could get called by a weak hand twice. In the next hand, the big blind is 2,000 and I'm quite short stacked with about 42,000, so about 21 big blinds. The low jack, a good player who's a regular in 510 at Commerce, raises to 4,000 and I just call with two black kings in the cutoff. With a hand this strong and a stack this short, I'd like to induce action from the players behind me. Both blinds call, so with the ante, there's 18,000 in the pot heading to the flop, which comes queen, jack, 10, rainbow. This is an interesting flop in that the preflop raiser can have any strong hand on this board, including ace-king or any set or two pair. Either of the blinds can also have king-9, nine, 9-8, nine, or two pair here. I still like my pocket kings, and with an overpair and a draw to a straight myself, I might be willing to put my stack in with them, but perhaps not if the action gets too intense. 
The blinds both check, and the preflop raiser bets 6,500, about a third of the pot. I call, and the blinds fold. So there's 31,000 in the pot heading to the turn, which is a 5, creating a backdoor spade draw. So queen, jack, 10, 5, with two spades, and I have kings with the king of spades. The low jack checks, which is good, because I would have pretty strongly considered folding if my opponent had bet four ways on the flop and then bet again on the turn. He's good enough to have lots of hands stronger than mine in his range even when he checks, especially with less than pot behind and another round of betting to come. So I check back. The river is the jack of spades completing the backdoor flush. My opponent checks again, and now I think it's very likely that my hand is good, but I don't think there's much value in betting against a good opponent who will probably be able to fold something like ace-queen to a bet. So I check back, and my opponent shows queen-ten of diamonds for a flop-two pair that got counterfeited on the river. I end up getting my last 20 big blinds in a couple hours later when I raise with king-jack suited, and the big blind raises my small continuation bet on a board of king-six-four. I call the raise, and the turn is a four that creates a flush draw. The big blind checks, and I jam for about two-thirds pot, which is probably a small mistake, and he calls and wins with 6-4 offsuit. So nothing headline grabbing here. Actually, there isn't anything that comes close to justifying the elaborate psychedelic art metaphor we started with, but I don't even need anything that crazy to feel like tournaments are worth my time. I just need something, some interesting decision points, some spots that force me to think creatively. I keep coming back to tournaments in part because recent history notwithstanding, I know they can give me at least that. And there's also the outside chance of making a ton of money. For a winning cash game player who mostly studies cash game strategy, there's no chance that for me, tournaments are worth the hourly rate I can win playing cash. Maybe the main event is, but I even doubt that. But tournaments are still the only chance I have of making 100,000 or a million dollars in a couple days. So I'm going to pick a few good ones each year and fire. I have four days booked in Las Vegas this weekend. I might stay longer, but I'm keeping things open-ended in case I have work to do for Live at the Bike or I just get annoyed and want to come home. Either way, the mid-month episode of Third Man Walking will probably recap a World Series of Poker session. And if you're going to be at the Rio this week, feel free to come say hi. So it's September 14th as I record this. Today I played 5-10-20. And it wasn't a super crazy session, but I did play a few interesting hands against good players that I thought I would share. In this first one, I'm in the cutoff with nine seven of hearts and I raised to $60. It folds to the straddle who calls. Now, I don't know this player very well. From what I've seen, he does play quite competently. I'm not sure if he's a pro, but he certainly could be. So I raise, he calls. There's about 130 in the pot, and the flop comes jack 9-3 with no hearts, none of my suit. So I have middle pair with 9-7 on jack 9-3. And I should mention here with these first two hands, I didn't I, I did not write them down until I got home. So I know I've got them basically right, but it's it's possible that the last card was a four or something. But what we'll just say jack 9-3 with no hearts. He checks, and I think that in my spot betting or checking are both fine. The big benefit to betting is my opponent will fold a lot of hands that have say one over card to the nine, which is valuable. Uh, But I think there's also value in checking and being able to pick off bluffs and play a medium sized pot 
on future streets with a made hand. So I do check this time. So there's still 130 in the pot heading to the turn, which is the nine of clubs. So now it's jack nine, three, nine with two clubs. And I have nine, seven of hearts. So I have trips. He checks. And now the problem for me is that I expect a lot of his better hands to probe on the turn. So I think a lot of his nine X will go ahead and bet. And a lot of his Jack X, specifically if he has a hand like ace Jack, King Jack, I expect those hands to bet quite a bit. So I think his range is mostly quite weak here. I end up betting $75, about 60% of the pot. And my opponent does call. So now there's $280 in the pot and the river is an offsuit seven. So now Jack nine, three, nine, seven. And again, I have nine, seven of hearts. So I have backed into a full house. He checks. And again, this is just a spot where he's probably not very strong. I do think occasionally he will have some nine X that just plays as a check call on the turn. It's rare, but it will happen occasionally. He could also have pocket sevens, which is also rare because there's a seven on the board and I have one of the sevens, but it's certainly not impossible that he could have that one combo left of pocket sevens. And I think a lot of what's left in his range beyond that is just like lower pairs, like three X or pocket fives or something like that, that probably aren't going to call a bet regardless of, of what I put out there. So I decide to target what's left of the strong portion of his range. Again, a little bit of nine X pocket sevens, 10, eight, maybe, and go for an overbet. Uh, so I bet 450 into 280. And again, this is because I, I just don't think most of his range is calling a bet regardless of what the size of the bet is. So again, I go 450 into 280 a little bit more than 1.5 X pot. And unfortunately he does fold, which I expect is what he's going to do most of the time, but I'm fine with having gone for it there. This next hand is against uh, a different opponent who is a pro who I play with a lot. Uh, I know his game pretty well. He knows mine pretty well. There are two limps and he's in the big blind and raises to $135. So I'm in the straddle with King Jack of clubs. And this is sort of an interesting spot here, preflop already. First, I ask myself, do I want to have a calling range here? And the answer is yes. We're about $4,000 effective. And I think if I have a hand like pocket sixes, pocket sevens, I definitely want to play those kinds of hands as a call. However, I don't think I want to have a big calling range because I only have $20 invested in this pot. It's 135 to call or 115 more to call. And I'm just not getting much of a price here. In addition, I'm probably going to have to realize post flop against four players if I call, because if I call, it's probably going to induce the two limpers to call as well. So the other option is the three bet folding is obviously ridiculous, but I can definitely three bet. And a couple things lean me in that direction. First of all, the king and the jack are good blockers to whatever strong hands uh, my opponent in the big blind could have. And secondly, something I know about this opponent is that he raises in these spots a lot more frequently than I do. 
So specifically, there's a couple of limpers. He's in the blinds. He's raising a lot more than I would in that spot. I'm not saying he's wrong to do so. He's a good player, and no one really knows how these spots are supposed to go. Anytime somebody is is limping pre-flop, we're already pretty much off the game tree. And it's quite possible that his strategy is better than mine. But what's important for our purposes here is that I know he's pretty wide. So I expect that I'll get a decent number of folds if I re-raise. So I do go ahead and three bet to $450. It folds back to the professional in the big blind who put in the 135 and he calls. So there's about 940 in the pot. And again, I have king jack of clubs and the flop comes 1088 rainbow with no clubs. Pretty disappointing flop, but when he checks it over, I think, okay, this isn't great, but I have all the overpairs here. I have all the aces, kings, queens, jacks. I certainly would always have pocket tens as well. And what really strong hands does he have? I think he does have pocket tens for sure. I don't think he four bets that preflop. I don't think he has very much 8x though, that he's raising out of position over two limpers and then calling a $450 three bet with. So the fact that I have aces through tens in my range is pretty huge here. So he checks, I bet $325, about a third of the pot, and he calls. So now there's about $1690 in the pot, and the turn comes the queen of diamonds, creating a backdoor diamond draw. So now 10, 8, 8, queen, and I have king jack of clubs. He checks, and this is a card that can interact fairly well with hands that he has. He can maybe have jack nine suited here. He can have queen 10 suited for sure. And he can have hands like queen jack suited with a backdoor flush draw that peel to a small sizing on the flop and now have top pair. So not a bad card for him, but certainly not a bad card for me because again, I retain pocket queens, pocket tens, aces, kings, and I would also have ace queen here. I have about $3,500 behind. So any reasonably sized bet here should send the message to my opponent that there's a pretty good chance that I'm going to shove on the river. And I have a pretty tight rep and one of the worst hands I would ever turn up with in this situation. So after he checks, I bet $900 into 1690. No need to go huge here since $900 does send the message that I could very well shove on the river. And I, I feel like a good percentage of his range has to make the choice here about, are we trying to play for stacks here or not? And he folds. So in the last big or biggish hand of the night, the hijack raises to $60. I'm in the small blind with pocket tens. And playing in these three blind games, I used to never flat call uh, an open from the small blind. But I've adjusted that over the past 18 months or so. And now I do play a call range here from the small against a hijack open. So with a hand like pocket tens, if my opponent were in the cutoff, I would definitely three bet. And I think there's a good case for three betting even here. But this time I decided to go for the call and the big blind and straddle who are both recreational players call as well. So there's about 235 in the pot. Again, I've got pocket tens. And the flop comes king, 10, 8, with the 10 and 8 of diamonds. So I have middle set. I check it. 
the two recreational players after me and the blinds also check and the hijack now bets $140. So this is an interesting decision point in the hand, I think, because the obvious play here is to raise. I mean, I have a really strong hand. There are some draws I could balance this with. I could have a hand like, say, Queen Jack of Diamonds that is happy to pile money into this pot, or maybe something like Ace Jack of Diamonds. So I certainly can raise when I have middle set. That is clearly an option. The problem with that here is that the hijack, who is the person who bet the 140, is a pro. And the other two players in the hand are recreational players. And if I raise here over this $140 bet, I'm mostly forcing the two recreational players to fold. If I just call, they can potentially call with hands that they shouldn't call with or hands that maybe they should call with, but that they're going to make mistakes with on later streets, and they can raise. So I think there's a lot of merit to calling to keep those players in. Uh, so I do call, and unfortunately, both the recreational players in the blinds fold. So now there's about $515 in the pot. I'm heads up with the pro and the hijack, and the turn comes an offsuit six. So now the board is king, 10, eight, six with two diamonds, and I have pocket tens. I check again, and my opponent now bets $600. So a slight overbet, $600 into 515, and now it's back on me. So I think when my opponent overbets here and can have really all the strong hands in his range, certainly has nine, seven suited, certainly could have pocket kings, I think I mostly want to proceed by calling. His overbet is saying he is potentially quite strong. And I think when that's the case, I mostly want to call rather than raise. So I do call, hoping that I get a clean river and I get my opponent to put another bet in. So there's 1715 in the pot now. And the river is in offsuit four. So now the board is king, 10, 8, 6, 4 with bricked front door diamonds, and I have pocket tens. I check it over again, and this time my opponent checks back. I flip over the pocket tens. Obviously, they're good. Uh, the, the table <laughs> makes a few comments about that, um, but I'm happy with the way I played it, and I think against a pro, I'm probably going to be playing a lot of hours with. There's some value in showing down a hand like this and letting him know that my range that appears capped when I just call on the flop and sort of on the turn is in fact not all that capped. I can still have some strong hands. Uh, that should make him think twice about similar spots in the future. So not a super crazy day, but a good day. I lost some money in 510 prior to the game switching to 510-20. As you heard, most of the big spots I played once I got to 510-20 were against good players. That's not what you want, but some days that's just how things go. And I finished with a profit of a little over $1,200 for the day, so I can't really complain. Thanks for listening to Third Man Walking. You can find me on Twitter at thirdwalking or via email at thirdmanwalkingpodcast at gmail.com. 